0: Thank you for the worship so much. Uh, you know, Keith, uh, Keith did a great job with our welcome. I appreciate that. I appreciate you if you found your way in between the construction and the collector's convention. Um, right here in the sweet spot in the middle. Uh, if you did come for the collector's convention, you are still in the right place because it's Sunday morning and you ought to be at church, right? Just saying. Um, and if any of you want to buy a Millennium Falcon after the, after the sermon today, it's, it's available next door. Um, you know, uh, it works that there's a convention uh, of collectors next door on the same day I do a, a series about The Avengers. Um, you know, The Avengers is a huge movie already. Uh, already this weekend it will make about $250 million in the U.S. and, and near $600 million worldwide. A good chance more than any movie has ever made before in its first weekend. Um, as a series, it's already multiple billions of dollars into their revenue. But it's a strange name in some ways, The Avengers. Um, it's a part of kind of pop culture now, so we don't even notice the name itself or the word itself, but the name obviously has to do with uh, being, being an avenger, going for revenge. You know, people looking for vengeance. Uh, the truth is that on some level, we all know vengeance is wrong. On some level, we all know vengeance is wrong. We know avenging. We know revenge is wrong. Uh, you know, we know it so much. In fact, you know, there was once a movie that was going to use a version of that word, uh, the, revenge, the revenge of the Jedi. They, they initially called the movie Return of the Jedi Revenge of the Jedi. And, and at the last minute, after they had already made posters that you might be able to buy as a collector's item next door, after they already made posters and made plans and titled the movie and everything, they decided late late in the game, shortly before it came out, they thought, you know what? A Jedi would not get revenge. They decided that even a fictional hero should have morals that would prevent revenge. And yet today, the most popular movie is The Avengers. In some ways... Uh, things have shifted. You know, what was once an un-Jedi concept uh, and, you know, is, is, is perfectly acceptable. Uh, we've decided that if you're going to go kill aliens for vengeance, it's okay. <laughs> so part of us knows vengeance is a bad thing, but part of us really also loves payback. Part of us loves revenge. Part of us loves when someone who's done wrong kind of gets their comeuppance. When you've done something you're not supposed to and, and you get what's coming to you. You know, the Bible talks about vengeance a lot. Uh, There's tons of examples of vengeance in the Bible, and that's where the idea for the sermon came from, the Avengers of the Bible. But I'm actually not going to talk about uh, Avengers or or even heroes or superheroes in the Bible. I'm going to talk about that idea of vengeance and revenge, and when people decide that they're going to be an Avenger in the Bible. It's largely not a heroic thing when they go that route. You know, we see it especially in the book of Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel tell the story of Samuel and and Saul and David. And what they really tell the story of is is about 50-plus years of civil war in God's kingdom. 50-plus years where God's people, where the nation of Israel is at war with itself. It's a book about civil war and about cycles of violence and cycles of vengeance and payback. In some ways, the heroes and the villains blur together. They blur together in the book because they all do some awful things in the name of vengeance. And I believe there's, there's tons that we can learn from these men and women about how God views vengeance. And today I want to, talk, I want to look at Saul, uh, Saul and the dangers of vengeance. Saul was the first king of Israel, the first man chosen to be king. And I want to look at some things we can learn from his vengeance you can look at 1 Samuel 14, and you might be saying, uh, this sounds interesting in some ways, but I'm actually not, I'm not a person who goes for vengeance. That's not who I am, right? I bet if I asked for a show of hands, most of you would not be like, yes, I have gone and uh, avenged somebody. I saw someone hurt, and I went and avenged them, or I avenged myself, or I avenged myself on my enemies. Most of us have not done that. That's not who we are in a lot of ways, but we don't live in a time of civil war like they did in the book of Samuel. We don't live surrounded by cycles of payback and vengeance and violence. But we do live in a, wo- in a world that has its own cycles. Cycles of hate and cycles of payback and cycles of lack of forgiveness. Where fathers and mothers pass dysfunction on, uh, usually unwittingly and unwillingly, but pass dysfunction on to their sons and their daughters. And everyone has an excuse for why their hurts are so bad that they don't have to let go of them. That they're allowed to hold on, if not to vengeance itself, then at least to lack of forgiveness. And we can learn some things about this uh, and about how we view these ideas from Saul and the dangers of vengeance. You know, the first point in the lesson today is just that vengeance makes you foolish. Lack of forgiveness and vengeance makes you foolish. 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself and my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father, Saul, had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten the day some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? Your know, vengeance will make you foolish. Saul here is so concerned with avenging himself. He's so concerned with his own payback against his enemies that he makes foolish decisions. He says, no food for anyone until I have vengeance. Now, what's the connection there? There isn't one. It's not like, you know what? It's not like, you know what, we're going to fast and seek the Lord's will so we win in battle. No, it says nothing about fasting or prayer or seeking the Lord's will or any of those things. It's not like he says, uh, no one can go home and and have uh, leave from the army until we're finished battling. Those things are connected. No, he says nobody can eat any food until I kill enough people. Jonathan even points out how, how foolish it is later and says, we would have killed more people if you let us eat food. He says, didn't you see the way my eyes brightened when I ate the honey? You know, this is a time in, 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 in human history and world history where there wasn't such a thing as candy, right? Today we eat a lot of sweet things, so sweet things aren't a big deal. Even, even, the, even the meat or the entrees, we have elements of sweet sometimes, Right? You'll get something that's sweet and spicy or sweet and sour or fill in the blank. But our food has tons and tons and tons of sweetness. But they lived in a time where nothing was sweet except honey. And when you found honey, I mean, imagine being a child who had never eaten sugar before. Maybe you've known children or you were a child that, you know, a child that wasn't allowed to have candy. And then somehow they get away from their mom Because dads never make that decision, right? There's probably never been a dad in the history of the world that was like, you can't have candy. But they get away from mom or dad, if there was a dad. They get away, and, and someone else gives them candy. And what happens to that kid? Right? The eyes brighten. Energy goes coursing through your veins. You could take on the world. You could lift a truck over your head, right? Jonathan's like, if he had let us have the honey, if he had let us have food, In general, we would have been stronger. We would not be faint like we are, weak like we are right now. But Saul makes this, this rash vow for no reason, with no possible benefit. He also makes the vow without even telling all of his men. He makes the vow without even telling his favored son. His son who was his greatest warrior, his son who brought him all his victories, his son who was a righteous man, his son who was a good man. And Saul doesn't even bother to tell him, oh, by the way, if anyone eats, they have to die. It's a foolishness. It's a foolishness we don't see from Saul in other places. Because when you're mad with vengeance, when you're consumed with payback, when you have bitterness inside of you, when you have anger inside of you, and what you're concerned with is hurting who hurt you, you get really foolish really quick. You know, World War II, we as Americans can sometimes like to think that we saved the world in World War II. Guess what? That's not what happened. We entered and joined the war when it was almost won already. And then we came along like mopping things up and going, look how strong we are. We beat, you know, everybody else wore themselves out, and then we came in and beat them while they were tired. What really won World War II, what really defeated Hitler was the foolishness that comes from vengeance. You know, Germany, which is depicted in green right there, Germany had wiped everything west of them all the way to the coast. There was nothing they touched to the west that they had not conquered and destroyed. They dominated and destroyed and and violated and sinned against everything in their path. And they would have continued to do so until the whole world was speaking German. But Hitler had been a part of World War I, and he felt like it was Russia's fault that Germany lost World War I. And he felt like it was their fault, and he felt like it was the communists' fault, and he felt like there were communists in his own country, and that they didn't like him, and he didn't like them. So even though he had a treaty with all that red, and even though all he had to do was finish killing everything in this direction, in the middle of a raging world war that he was, he was dominating, he said, I'm going to start a second war over here. And it proved too much for him. It was, it was maybe the most foolish war that anyone has ever started in history. Not only did he start war over here, he started war over here shortly before winter began. And his troops froze to death by the tens of thousands. Russians died By the millions and millions and millions, six million Jews died in World War II. Twenty million Russians, mostly civilians, died. All in the name of some man's vengeance and payback. He made one of the most foolish blunders in history because you know what? He got hurt by them once. And he couldn't wait to hurt them again. Even the prospect of hurting him later wasn't enough. He wanted to hurt them now. Now, you could be thinking right now, I, I, that's bad, but I'm not Hitler. I agree. You are indeed not Hitler. You know, the Bible tells us that all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. Um, and I know we're supposed to believe we're the worst of sinners. But God, I do not think, would begrudge you when you say, yeah, but I'm not Hitler. So you may not be a person who, who goes and tries to murder for vengeance, but it remains true that vengeance makes you foolish. Vengeance steals away whatever measure of intelligence God gave you. Your lack of forgiveness works the same in our life. Desire for murder and payback makes you foolish. Lack of forgiveness will make you foolish. When we hold back forgiveness, bitterness grows in our heart and foolishness grows right along with it. All of a sudden, we distrust the people who are trying to help us. When you're not forgiving people, all of a sudden, you stop trusting the people who are trying to help you. That's foolish. Why would you not trust the people who are trying to help you? Because lack of forgiveness will make you foolish. We start to question God. When we have lack of forgiveness, when we have bitterness, we start to question God, the God who made us, the God who provides for us, the God who wants to remake us in his His image, the God who wants to give us eternal life after he already gave us physical life, the God who loves us more than anything. And we start to question God. It makes no sense we would question. And yet, when we lack forgiveness, we become foolish and we start to question God. We harden our hearts and we sever relationships around us. We start to withdraw. You know, Nathan sins against me and it makes me angry and it makes me want to hurt Nathan, but I pull back from everyone. Nathan hurt me and it makes me mad and it makes me mad at Josiah. That's foolish. Why would one person hurting me make me withdraw from the rest of you? I don't know, but that's what we all do. We get hurt, and we start severing and breaking off the relationships all around us because vengeance makes us foolish. We become foolish in all these ways. You know, where in your life are you not forgiving? Where in your life are you not forgiving? Because the place in your life where you're not forgiving, it's the place in your life where you're becoming very, very foolish. Second, vengeance hurts everyone. Vengeance hurts everyone. The story continues in 1 Samuel 14. It says, that day, this is verse 31, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sitting against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. And Saul begins to sacrifice. Later, Saul uh, hears that, that, that Jonathan has eaten the honey, and he, he declares that Jonathan must die. He even makes another foolish vow and says, you know, it's on me if I don't kill you. He says to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die? Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel, never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. You know, vengeance hurts everyone. You know, when I want vengeance against someone, the first person hurt is the person I want vengeance against. Yeah. Saul wanted vengeance here, and it, it, it's, it, it's maybe popular to say, oh, when, when you want vengeance, you hurt yourself the most. Kind of, but the guys he wanted vengeance against, they struck down all the way from one city to the next. I, I would say it hurt those guys a lot. They were murdered. They were murdered. They were killed. They were slaughtered in battle. When you want vengeance, you will hurt the person you want want wanted against. That may be what you want. That may cheer you up, but you will. You'll hurt the person you want vengeance against. But it also hurts his men. You know, it leads his men directly into sin. He says, none of you can eat today. And by the time they get done fighting an actual battle, which I... I assume, burns more calories than, like, the elliptical, right? I mean, these guys are fighting an actual battle with no food. And by the end of it, they just start to slaughter the animals and eat them before the blood has run out. They start to break every law of how the Jews eat. Saul's rash, foolish vow has led them directly into sin. His vow for them on their behalf that they didn't want and in some cases even know about has, has opened them up to temptation. It leaves them open to Satan's attacks. You know, it hurts his son. Like I said, his favored son, his champion son, now stands with a death sentence over his head. And it hurts Saul. You know, maybe most of all, he breaks a vow before God. You know, the Old Testament taught that you don't make a vow unless you mean it. And yet, Saul hastily makes a vow, hastily makes another one about killing his son. But the Old Testament also taught that if you were kind of foolish and you made a dumb vow, there was a way out of it. And yet, Saul breaks multiple vows, never considers them when he makes them, and never considers them when he breaks them. He's compromising who he is. He's compromising who he is. He's losing the respect of his men. You know, when his son, in the first passage we read, when his son hears, his son who is a good, righteous man, his son who is all the best parts of Saul, when his son hears about the vow his dad made, what does his son do? He publicly in front of the men says, Why would my dad do that? That was dumb. Look how look how strong I am. Look at my eyes. Look, look how look how much better we would be as soldiers. Saul is compromising himself in front of his men. He's making it where it's hard for them to respect him. And look at the end of the look at the end of the incidents. It's interesting. His men say, Should Jonathan die? Never. So, you know when men say never to the king? Never. Right? That's a death wish to tell the king, hey, you've made a vow this is going to happen? Never. But when a king so thoroughly compromises himself and loses the respect of everyone he leads, that they all speak with one voice and say, that's not going to happen today. You know, I love the movie Tombstone, and there's, there's a scene in it where, where Wyatt Earp, the sheriff, says, "We're going to arrest you," and he goes, "You know what, sheriff? I don't think I'm going to let you arrest me today." And turns and walks off. He says, "You know, I, I don't think I'm going to let you. You don't have the authority. Even though you have the authority, you don't have the authority." And that's what his men tell Saul after the whole story. It says that Saul's sovereignty, his authority, was established over Israel. He is a king in every possible way. He is powerful in position. He's powerful in in, in all those ways. He's a head taller than any man in the nation. And yet they all tell him, never, you're not doing that. His quest for vengeance, his foolishness that results, it compromises him and it costs him the respect of everyone who knows him. You know, when we're motivated by payback, when we don't forgive, we hurt everyone around us. You know, the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, the writer says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. If I don't forgive, if there's a conflict between me and a brother, me and a sister, and I don't forgive, it says it will defile many. You think about a marriage. If I'm mad, and I'm mad at rep. it hurts me, but it's going to defile my wife pretty quickly. Before too long, my wife's going to catch that attitude. My wife's a righteous woman, but two are one. And the poison of my bitterness will defile her. Where do we use words like defile in the Bible? Usually related to sexual sin. Where someone has been ruined. Someone has been made impure and unholy. When you hold lack of forgiveness in your heart, when you hold bitterness in your heart, you're defiling and making impure and unholy the people around you. I never met a husband who was looking to defile his wife. Never met a father who wanted to to defile his daughter. Most fathers, if someone else defiled their daughter, they'd go looking for vengeance. Vengeance they'd all of a sudden become Avengers. And yet we don't take it seriously when the bitterness in our own heart is defiling the people around us. You know, in God's church, when there is conflict, when there is bitterness, when there is unresolved things in the church, which is what this is talking about, it says it defiles many. You hold on to your heart. You hold on in your heart to some bitterness. You hold on to some unspoken thing that that you don't like. You have some conflict, some attitude with a brother, some attitude with a leader, some attitude with someone you lead. Fill in the blank. You hold on to something, and you think, but you know what? I'm I'm not going to say anything about it. I can deal with it. You can deal with it by defiling the people around you. You can deal with it by taking the brothers and the sisters in Christ around you who are fighting the good fight to be pure and faithful and righteous and defiling them. As they fight to keep their robe clean, you drag them through the mud. With your bitterness. At work. I think for many, this is a huge source of bitterness and lack of forgiveness. Some of us will take very seriously forgiveness in marriage. Uh, I know I got to forgive my wife it was hard. I know I know I have to forgive my husband. It's hard, but I know I have to. I know God says I have to. I know I've got a problem with a brother in the church and and I can't hold it against him. I got I got to go talk to him. That's what the Bible says. I got to go deal with it face to face with that sister. A lot of us have convictions about these things and then we go to work and just resent our coworkers, and resent our bosses, and resent our employees. Like somehow, bitterness at work is okay. Like somehow, that'll stay at work. Yeah, I guess I might defile a coworker, but I'm kind of okay with that. No, no, you're going to take it home with you. You think you check your work baggage at the door when you come home? Ask your spouse. Ask your spouse. Spouses, can you tell when your spouse had a bad day at work? 100%, right? Children, can you tell when your parents had a bad day at work? 100%. The most oblivious of us that was not overly blessed with intuition. Some of us are a little, you know, just we don't have a lot of intuition. And still, we can tell when someone close to us had a bad day at work because it's not hard. Because you take every single hurt, every single disrespect, every single bitterness, every single unresolved conflict, every single bit of stress, and you carry it home and you bring it in the door with you. And you defile many. You know, friendships and relationships, it all works the same. Vengeance, lack of forgiveness hurts everyone. We can't leave these things in our lives. And finally, vengeance leads to destruction. You know, this is the end of 1 Samuel 14. We're getting towards the end of Saul's time, kind of as God's chosen man. In the very next chapter, in in, in 1 Samuel 15, another incident happens for Saul. It's very similar in a lot of ways to this one. And it peaks with the prophet of God saying, You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. You know, as the prophet tries to walk away, Saul grabs hold of his robe and says, no, please don't leave me. I want to change at this point, please. And as he pulls away, his robe tears. He says, as you've torn my robe, so has the Lord torn the kingdom from your hands today not only that, he's already picked your replacement. God is moving on without you, Saul. What a, what a scary and terrifying thing. The idea that God would move on without us. I mean, it's, it's a direct line from one chapter to the next. The chapters in the Bible... The stories in the Bible, they're not not arranged on accident. They're not even always 100% chronological. They're, They're in the order they are to make a point. And here's Saul out for vengeance. Not Saul fighting the Lord's battles. Here's Saul out for vengeance. Here's Saul foolish in his vengeance. Here's Saul hurting those around him in his vengeance. And right after that, there's Saul. Rejected. You know, Saul starts sinful patterns here that never leave his life. In 1 Samuel 14, in this story of Jonathan and the honey and these things, and Saul's quest for vengeance, he shows an independence and pride that never leaves his life. He shows a hastiness, a thoughtlessness, Jump into action without thinking. And it never leaves his life. That's how he is from that day out. You know, you can start a sinful action in a payback response. What do I mean by that? I mean, you could get so hurt that you act out in a sinful way that's not you. You get so hurt that you act out in lust or pornography or, or, or sexual immorality. I was hurt. I was, I was lonely. I was depressed. You can get so hurt, you act out and indulge in alcohol or drug use. I was hurt. I was overwhelmed. I couldn't handle it. You get so hurt, you act out in anger and rage. Of course I lashed out. Did you hear what happened to me? Of course I struck. Of course I yell. We can act out in these ways almost as instinct, almost just pure instinct in sinful nature. But what is a a lashing out without thought? What's an instinct? Quickly becomes a habit. And if you were to look at the sinful patterns, the sinful habits in your life, and you were to examine where they came from, almost without fail, they come because once upon a time you were so hurt that you lashed out in a way that was almost, understand, you know, almost understanding. You lashed out in a way. Well, of course, I, of course I became angry. Of course I started to hate. You know, as I studied the Bible as a young man, they were like, here's, here's what the Bible says is sin. And I looked at it, and I was just ashamed of who I was. I'd done almost everything they talked about. I was ashamed of who I was. I was heartbroken. I sat and wept in tears. I wasn't a young man who knew how to have emotion. But I sat and wept in tears when I saw my sin. And they said, You got to change all this. And I said, I can't wait to change it. I don't want to be this way anymore. And they said, You got to change all of it. And I said, I want to change all of it. And they said, All that hate towards your dad, you have to change that. And I said, No, I don't. That's not like the other stuff, guys. That other stuff is shameful, it's terrible, it's awful. But didn't you hear what my dad did to me? Yeah, but it's sin, the hatred you have. You have, to, you have to repent. No, I don't. You're not listening to me. There was kidnapping and there was violence and there was alcohol and there was blood and there was this and there was this. Didn't you hear me? Your hate is your sin, and if you don't change it. And it was the hardest obstacle for me. All the rest of it, I I couldn't wait to change, even though I didn't even really know it was wrong before that. My conscience knew it was wrong, but I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know anything about anything. I found the church on accident. I found God on accident. I wasn't looking, but as soon as I found it, I was like the guy who bought a field and found a pearl. As soon as I found it, I was like, yes, yes, yes. This is what I want. Where has this been all my life? Why didn't everyone tell me about this? But no, I'm not letting go of my hate. I I don't know any any other way to be. I tell you, what had started as a very understandable response from a young man had had really become a, a habit. and the anger and the rage that went with it. I didn't direct it at him. I didn't know where he was. so I directed it at all kinds of places. It had really become a habit. And if you'll look at your life, you'll see that the things that, that seem justifiable, they quickly become habits that you really can't defend. Your vengeance leads to destruction. You start out paying back a hurt, and before you know it, you're destroyed. So vengeance is bad, in case you didn't know it. That's the moral of the story today. Vengeance is bad. That's a whole lot of words for something you already knew, right? Like, I knew vengeance is bad. So what's the answer? Ephesians chapter 4 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, Along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. What's the answer? To let go of bitterness and to forgive each other. Basically, don't be an avenger. You know That's what Jesus did at the cross. He let go of sin. He let go of the desire to pay back. And he forgave. 1 Peter 2, verse 23 says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Jesus had cause to avenge. He was truly innocent and was wronged. And he could have paid them back for it. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. You know, Jesus paid back hurt with love. No matter what they deserved, and no matter how justified he would have been, he didn't avenge himself. And I know many of us have been hurt, and we've been wounded in ways that justify a bit of payback. We have scars that mean we get to hurt back. But thank God, thank God that he sent Jesus so we could be healed. Thank God that that, that he sent Jesus so we could be healed. And you know, you've been hurt, I've been hurt, we've been hurt, And and, and thank God we've been healed of those hurts. But I feel like, thank God even more that he sent Jesus so others could be healed of the hurt I've inflicted. You know, guys, I don't know what the cosmic balance scale would say. If if God added up all the hurt I've inflicted and added up all the hurt I've received, even if God found that I've received ten times more hurt than I've dished out, I think I'd still, I know I'd still be more grateful for the healing that comes to others for what I've done than even for the healing I've received for what's been done to me. Thank God that in my anger, thank God that in my rage, thank God that that in all the things I've done, thank God that in my, my lust and in my impurity, thank God that in all these ways, God can heal those that I've hurt. Because of the cross, we get to move about this world, breaking cycles of payback and hurt, instead responding with love and forgiveness and grace. Amen. We're going to go ahead and take communion now. Uh, Join with me in prayer for the emblems. Father, thank you so much for the, the bread, for the body that was broken. God, we truly know that by those wounds we were healed. God, we were broken people. God, we had no chance of being made whole, uh, and yet Your body was broken so we could be made whole. God, thank You for all the all the wounds I've inflicted, God, that have been made whole by the body of Christ. For all the times I've I've hurt my wife uh, on, on purpose or on accident, all the times I've, I've I've hurt and disappointed my children on on accident or on purpose, and, and, and all the ways I've hurt those around me and, and the people I love, God. And, and the broken body of Christ that makes them whole, Father. That takes where I am weak, God, and, and, and makes only strength. Thank you for the blood that was shed that, that washes us clean so we don't bear the guilt of what we've done. God, thank you for the, the chance to, to see those around us that, that have hurt us, to see them washed clean, God, so that we can forgive, Father, so we can know uh, we, don't, we don't need to hold on to these things anymore, God. You know, Thank you. Thank you, God, that we don't have to be avengers in these ways. God, thank you that Jesus wasn't, uh, that he stayed silent. God, that he never paid back except in love. So in his name we pray. Amen.